I was I'm trying to think of what we're actually going to talk about like before we get to talking about the main thing we're going to talk about but it's just going to be quarantine chat it's every it's always quarantine chat uh the sheer monotony of life means that you can't really do any small talk I think oh well, we haven't uh, we haven't heard what Anton has to say about quarantine so okay let's see okay what okay say. By the way, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. My name is Alex Hoheling, São Paulo, Brazil. Phil Cunliffe is in Canterbury. George Hor is in London. And our guest today, once again, it's great to have him back, uh, Anton Yeager. Hi, Anton. How is quarantine treating you? It's fine. I'm uh, stuck in Corpus Belgium, um, which is a kind of island of, of post-war welfareism. So it's it's all fine. <clears throat> They could be worse places to be. There's worse places to be. Have you got troops on the streets? What's the lockdown like? No troops on the street. It's not quite as authoritarian as the French one, but not as libertarian as the German one. It's somewhere in between. Um, it's highly technocratic. Everyone listens to the experts. Everyone's so happy that they have to listen to the to the experts. But um, the social effects have been, or at least the economic effects, have been comparatively milder compared to other nations. Why is that? Uh, because Belgium still has a lot of these Keynesian stabilizers in place because it didn't have a government in 2010 when all these uh, public debt crises hit. So they never had the political manpower to actually implement austerity. And they just kept on going from one attempt to form a government to another. And that means austerity never kicked off. They only really started doing austerity in the second half of the 2010s. But it means you still have really generous unemployment insurance. You have, of course, you have public health care. But all of these stabilizers are still in place. And it means... We missed a trick there. Like the demand so Belgians, in the 2010s should Belgian, have been... It should have been for, for no government. Not for no government in any anarchist sense, but just rule well, by bureaucrats, no elections. And uh, they're all no, been on the austerity. No, but the weird thing is then, because basically what you're saying... So state failure in Belgium... Um, kind of Keynesian state failure in Belgium means that the economic effects aren't so severe, whereas in the US and the UK, state failure in terms of not having a proper medical infrastructure is exactly part of the problem. So Absolutely. Silicon Valley's been proved right. Fail, <clears throat> fail early. That's what you need to do. Fail in 2010s so you don't have to fail now. Uh, yeah, I mean, but you could say they have Greece and that's a different story now, or even of Italy, which had a pretty gruesome 2010s and is bound to have a pretty gruesome t- 2020s. But I think it's more not state failure, but more state paralysis, because the Belgian state is bureaucratically quite competent. Uh, there's just no capacity for will formation, or there's no sense of how you impose unity on this particular state. So it's just a very big administrative machine that everyone hates, but never, no one could get around of. And which in times of crisis actually does its job painfully well. Well, wasn't that the, the critique of um, the um, high proportion of jihadis in Belgium and the terror attacks in Belgium was all the overlapping jurisdictions and authorities between different security agencies and police forces was symptomatic of state failure, effectively? No? Yes. Yeah, I agree. But that's a particular kind of state failure, which I prefer over like British state failure, which has its own problems. I think the biggest problem in Belgium is that uh, it, it's a, really a state without a nation. 
And because there is no kind of national culture to support statecraft, this creates all kind of pathologies such as this jihadist episode and all that. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe maybe time for another for an episode on Belgium. Uh, but before we do that, uh, we should get on to the main topic today, uh, which is inspired in part by Anton's recent article on damage, uh, which uh, you should all read. It's there in the the uh, show notes. Uh, which is uh, it might take a while before history starts again. Uh, and reading it felt like being told by uh, your that's that's the, the title. Ta- that's the title of the article, by the way, listeners. Not it's not what Alex was just saying. <laughs> no, but it, but 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 being told that did feel like being told by your parents that you don't get dessert until you finish your broccoli. Uh, so Anton, why can't we have nice things? Or or in other words, can you summarize your article for us? I think the point of the article was uh, first the duty of memory almost because as I, I mean, as I and other people, I guess, also were observing what was happening in the first weeks of quarantine, it almost felt like the 2010s hadn't happened and people had forgotten what happened in the preceding decade and uh, saw a kind of almost sudden teleportation into a new world. And I wanted to say, like, let's actually take a really big step back and say, how did the 2010s lead into the 2020s? So why did left populism fail both in Europe and in America? And how is the failure of left populism leading into the new kind of COVID capitalism or the COVID world we're seeing today? And one of the main points I tried to talk about in the article is, well, the big problem of the 2010s was demobilization, which was the gambit that all these left populists ran into. So how do you do politics or how do you do mass politics in a time after mass politics? How do you mobilize in an age of demobilization? Uh, Left populism had a variety of solutions to that problem. I don't think any of them had a convincing one. And then 2020 is a kind of acceleration of the trends we saw in the 2010s where demobilization is being amped up even further and left populism, which is basically rendered irrelevant by history. Okay, but would you, I mean, the the claim that the 2010s was characterized by demobilization, I mean, surely it's the 90s and 2000s which were characterized by that. Uh, and maybe the 2010s continued that or maybe reversed it in, in some slight ways. Or do you think it really was the 2010s which uh, were mostly characterized by demobilization? No, ab- no, absolutely. So I think demobilization shows that there's a problem in the 2010s. While in the 1990s and in the 2000s, it wasn't theorized or articulated in the same way as a problem. So you have a massive literature in the 2000s about abstentionism. People don't vote enough. People are not interested in politics. People are apathetic. So liberals are calling from, we need to get people interested in politics again. And in the 2010s, of course, people get interested in politics again. But like, unfortunately, they vote for the wrong things and they do all these dangerous populist experiments. But it's more that from the left... um, you try to do left politics without the classical social actors that were available in the 20th century to do left politics. Uh, and in that sense, demobilization is still a problem in 2010s, um, in a different way from the 2000s, I think. Yeah, I think it's quite it's quite striking. The, I mean, this might be a kind of a crude way to put it, but in the 1990s and particularly in the noughties, you had this moral panic, particularly from liberals, about apathy and, you know, all of these solutions. How can we get people to participate? How can we get you know, voting rates up? How can we get not so much party membership, mainly just, you know, formal political participation. And then when people did start from maybe 2016 onwards, being more involved in politics, it was like, no, this is wrong. You're doing this entirely the wrong way. And the moral, the moral panic instead of apathy became around ignorance. 
some people were being taken for a ride they were being mobilized essentially in the wrong ways they weren't kind of reflective liberal deliberative citizens they were flocking to the banner of various populists left right or center so yeah i think it it's it's yeah mobilization is the key the key point i would add another layer to that though it's not um it's not just a sociological phenomenon or just a phenomenon of historical memory or experience but also political um in the 90s and 2000s and 2010s there was an explicit hostility to political organization to political authority to political leadership um and even in the parties that emerged in the wake of um the indignados and the um, protests in sigtagma square in athens and so on um all of those emerged from, you know, they were they tried to incorporate the leaderless, bottom-up um, feel of those um, kind of mass movements against austerity in the early days of the 2000 of the crash or in the aftermath of the crash in the early 2010s. So, and that, you know, there was a long tradition of um, political theory, which was. Um, on political theory on the left, which was explicitly hostile to traditional forms, traditional social constituencies, traditional social bases on the left, and also that sought to eschew traditional methods of organizing that chose to um, be explicitly populist, um, Podemos being the most explicit example, but Syriza as well to a lesser degree, that chose to kind of incorporate all sorts of um, different groups and trends into the left and Anyway, all my point is to say that it was um, it wasn't simply um, it wasn't simply something which was uh, you know kind of an unconscious tide. There was also a very conscious effort about this is how we want to do this, and the organizational forms and the political theories and all the political ideas and concepts that came out of that period have been tested to destruction, and nothing is left now since um, since Bernie Sanders capitulated to Biden. Yeah. I absolutely agree with that diagnosis, and I think that additional layer is important insofar as you highlight that there was an active ideological commitment to forms of demobilization, or the anti-organizational bias yeah. was very, very strong also on an ideological level. And I think this speaks to something that I haven't properly thought of, but which I think I'll think about more, is that we tend to underestimate the organizational continuity between the 2000s and the 2010s, mainly on the left. So the protests against the Iraq war and all these movementists moments in the 2000s actually resemble quite a lot what the first responses to uh, uh, to the recession were basically. So in 2008, whether it's Occupy Wall Street, whether it's the student protests in the UK, whether it's the Indignados in Spain, or the Squares movement in Greece, is that you have an essential continuity between the movementism of the 2000s and of the 2010s. It's only around the middle of the 2010s that you can see various forces on the left seeing the limits of this movement this moment saying okay this is not the way we're going to get our victories and trying to think through uh, the limits of that approach and coming up with a variety of solutions which at the end of 2019 and certainly at the beginning of 2020 look uh, historically superseded almost 